Hello, and welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. A dissident daughter is someone who actively challenges an established political or religious system, a doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. So that's my purpose in starting this podcast and why I wanted to have a space specifically for women to speak out and speak up. I'm glad you're here. Hello, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. This is Ada, and I have a really amazing guest with me today. I have Celeste Davis here. Yay! Yay. <laughs> I, I need to have like a cheering track to like <laughs> guests so that you feel very welcome. But um, if you, if any of my listeners, you probably already know Celeste, but if you don't, you should follow her. I have been following her for about three years I think you and I kind of went through our faith crisis a little bit similar time frame. You'll have to you'll have to tell me whether I'm wrong about that. But um, I've been following her. She's super wise. She's super amazing. And um, I wanted to have her on to just have a conversation about some of the things that that she talks about on her platform. Um, she's on Instagram, just as Celeste Davis, right? Yep. Celeste M. Davis is my handle. Celeste M. Davis. Okay. So go find her if you haven't already found her, but probably many people are already following you, but um, welcome to the podcast today. And I want to give you the opportunity to just kind of introduce yourself and you go ahead and start. <laughs> um. Okay. Hi. So happy to be here. So some, I guess some demographics. I yeah. um, live in Spokane, Washington. I have four children, ages five to 13. Okay. I am married, uh, raised LDS. I grew up in Texas, which just because that's not Utah did not make us any less devout. I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely like a different type of a bubble in Utah, but what I've seen and I, the only time I lived outside of Utah was on my mission. I, I went to Ohio, but mm. people are incredibly devout and committed to the gospel. It's just you're surrounded by more diversity, I guess. And so there is a little bit of a different, you know, you're not so, what's the word I'm looking for? Just sheltered, I guess, living in out of state, but still Mormon, you are, they are incredibly devout, right? So yeah, it can almost have a reverse effect where it makes you more devout because you don't yes. you can't just go along with the flow. You have to really put your stake in the ground and be like, this is who I am. I'm different than my friends. I don't drink. I don't have it's, sex. Like, and I am, you have, it like forces your commitment almost. It can sometimes. Yeah. It did for me, yeah. I would say. Yeah, I would say that's totally true. And that the same is true when you're in Utah that you kind of relax more. And there's a lot of, there's a lot, I mean, I had, all Mormon friends, but not all my Mormon friends were like living the Mormon standards, you know, many of them mm -hmm. on Sunday, but you would never know they were Mormon otherwise, you know, and that I had not really encountered that culture until like uh, my cousins, I encountered it like in high school who lived in Utah and I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, You do that and you go to church. Like <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. 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 The Mormons who I knew did that did that they just didn't go to church anyway ah yeah nope nope they all still go to church because you have to put on the face you have to look you have to look the part you know but mm -hmm. you grew up in utah county happy valley all all the mormons yeah so 
So keep going. I interrupted you. Oh, right. No. Um, so let's see. So I went to BYU. Oh, okay. Um, grew up in Allen, Texas till I was 18. Only applied to BYU. <laughs> went to BYU in Provo. <laughs> went on a mission to Slovenia when I was 21. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I did not know that. Have you talked about that on your Instagram? I mean, here and there, just kind of in passing, maybe yeah. I have like one or two mission posts that, okay. uh, but, but yeah, that's... that was definitely a formative experience for sure. Yeah. Um, no kidding. Slovenia. That's like yeah, exotic. <laughs> um, came back, um, got married to my husband who I met at BYU and then we were in in Utah for a few years, we moved to Iowa City, Iowa for seven years, back to Salt Lake for two years. And now we've been in Spokane for almost four years. Okay. okay. And um, left the church, which is, you know, a whole big, long story. Yes. <laughs> left the church in uh, right when COVID hit, we knew we weren't going back. That was our impetus. Okay. So um, like February, 2020. Yeah. So that is the exact same time that I, that I left. I think, well, my, I started, I was definitely having issues for about a year. I was really struggling and, and I kind of was like slowly, like becoming less active a little bit from like December to March of 2020. And then when COVID hit, like we did, we, I tried the at-home church thing a couple times. We had that, like your neighbor would come over and bless the sacrament. I think we did that once. And that like my shelf, all it all broke and it didn't really have anything to do with COVID. I think it was just going to happen anyways. So it was really right about the same time. Now you, I think you mentioned that your husband left before you, is that correct? Kind of. He was, I guess what you would call a physically and mentally out person. Ah, like he, yes. he lost his faith way back when and hung in there for many years, like just going to sacrament for the kids. But but yeah, we ended up, we were still, I guess by the end, he was attending maybe every other week, maybe like just for sacrament. Then I don't remember exactly, but, but basically like he didn't believe like, and he was losing his faith way, way, way before me. Like, yeah, I would say his started in like 2011, 2012. So was he open with you about how he was feeling? Did you guys have conversations about it or was he kind of keeping that to himself? It was rough because I was like level 10 freaking out. I mean, I was not a Mormon that was like, oh, it's fine. You can do what you, you do you, man. I was so, I believed so hard <laughs> and I was, I mean, it was like my biggest fear that he would leave. And so I definitely was not a safe place for him to, to have a, a safe place to discuss his feelings. Every conversation was very uncomfortable and my defenses were up and I was like the defender of the church in every one of those conversations, which did not make me a place that he wanted to, he like his hand was forced many instances because he needed to explain like this huge shift that was going on in him. But mm -hmm. Um, I just wasn't at a place where I could hear it, unfortunately. And it was, it was rough for, it was rough for a couple of years there for sure. Yep. Yeah. I'm just sitting here nodding my head because that's exactly like everything you described is exactly what we went through because so my husband and I have been married, we're on our 26th year, but maybe around year 20 ish, 
uh, maybe a little bit before that. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But he basically just kind of told me, I, I've never believed in the church. Oh, wow. He'd just been physically in, mentally out the entire right. Wow. No, that and was just, interesting. Yeah, he was just going with the flow. He was just doing all the things. He had never studied it or like learned about troubling things that made him lose his testimony. He just never had a testimony. Wow. He really would say like, he said he had never felt the spirit. He had never, you know, like gotten a, a confirmation of literally anything. He'd like never gotten a pr- an answer to his prayers. Like he just felt nothing. And mm-hmm. so he, he did. I mean, he still had the indoctrination enough that he was like, but this is the right thing to do. This is what I should do. This is what I'm supposed to do. And he just took all the steps, but never felt any of it. And he would literally like look around church and he would see people, you know, crying, feeling the spirit. And he'd be like, they're all faking it. They're all. <laughs> wow. So, so he just always felt that way. So when he was finally honest with me about it, I was shook, obviously. And I was just like begging him to just please stay, please don't give up, please keep trying, please keep praying, please keep reading your scriptures. Like, please, please, please. I was desperate. Yeah. And it wasn't, yeah, we had a few rough years. And then he started kind of like learning things and reading mm. things. And then he would like bring up little things. He would say something about the prophet and I would defend the prophet like, oh, but he's, you know, he's just doing the best he can. He's a man. He's not perfect. And we had all those conversations, but then, at, and he was in the elders quorum presidency when, mm-hmm. when he was kind of going through this, he, he'd been in the bishopric, he'd been in young men's presidency. He'd done all the things, big callings and never. And so, yeah. So at one point he just said, I have to be done. Like, you know, they're asking me to, I'm getting up in elders quorum teaching and I'm supposed to bear my testimony. He's like, I'm a total fraud. Like I hate the way this feels and I can't do it anymore. So we kind of, yeah, we went through major rough. And then I, I did come to a place of like acceptance of him not going to church and him believing differently, but I was still like very much trying to protect my kids and like, but then I had a daughter that came out as gay and that was my whole world blew up. And nothing could ever be the same after that because I could never think the same. I could never reconcile like what I'd been taught with who she was. And so that was really like the catalyst that threw it all down. So within a year of her coming out as gay, I was out. Wow. And then what was interesting is because my husband hadn't really, you know, done what I did, the deconstruction and the learning all the history, then we kind of did it together. Mm, Yeah that was kind of awesome. Like we still, you know, every single day we're talking about church stuff. It seems like it's, it's bonding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is right. Trauma bonding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Rich and I did a little of that because he was never history. Wasn't the, wasn't his impetus out at all. He was pretty much like, he was like, I don't care. Like, I don't care what happened with Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, whatever, all those early guys, he was like, even if they did what they said they were going to do, and even if it's all true, or even if it's not, regardless, like it's Mm -hmm. a bad thing right now. And his was very much social reasoning, social justice, women and the queer community and blacks. And anyway, um, just like, this is like not a good, the fruits are bad. Like this is not a good institution, regardless of our history. He would get bored at first. 
and like he was just like too, like he didn't really quite fit in I guess with like mm-hmm. the he was just like wanted to dissect every little historical he would be like I don't care and yeah. so that wasn't introduced to me until much later because he wasn't like read this oh my gosh you know yeah. like this yes letter wasn't part of our journey um anyway but so then all that to say when we finally did get to like the oh my gosh like wow what what <laughs> like that was a little bit on the same timeline because he just never really went through that anyway. yeah that is so interesting. It's, it's so funny when you like compare with other people, like their experience, like so much of it is the same. It's yeah. I, it, I don't think I will ever not be fascinated by the entire thing, the psychology <laughs> of deconstructing all the things that we were taught to do and be and the way the world was. And I love that your husband saw those issues because those are the things that I was like, I was so blind to those things. Oh, same. I remember when the November 2015 policy came out and I remember thinking that seems, that's sad. That seems, that seems hard and and not good. But I mean, the prophets must know something I don't know. And that's what I chalked it up to. Like God knows, and we'll learn at some point, we'll understand it at some point right now. I don't get it, but you know, it is what it is. The prophet said it, you know, I just shrug it off. And I love that other people saw that and took a stand and was like, oh, hell no, this is not okay. Because now I feel that way, but I was just in it too deep to recognize all the, all the bad stuff. Now that brings me to one of your, like the first, probably one of the first things that I saw from you, I don't know that I just loved and fell in love with you was when you talked about culture versus doctrine. I was kind of, I would describe myself as a progressive Mormon for like several years. And I always used that comment, you know, the church is perfect, the culture is not. Or, you know, I, you know, the culture has issues, but the doctrine is true. Like those were all the the things that I would say to people. And I, you know, I'm working on changing the culture. Like I want to make the culture more Christ-like, more. I was very much into Jesus and all of the Jesus stuff. And that was progressive. Isn't that interesting? But yeah. And then hearing you talk about that was fascinating. So I don't know, like if you can kind of talk about how you even came up with that, or I don't know just talk about that concept because you talked about how the culture is not created in a vacuum. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like that was mind blowing to me, literally. Well, I think it started, I used to say that too. I used to say the same thing, like, Oh, this church is so problematic. It's like so many bad fruits and like, we could just like, geez, change. But then like, but the doctrine of Christ is so pure. It's so perfect. And then, you know, just throughout time realizing, wait a minute, the reason that that idea exists is to protect the brethren because we can never criticize the brethren and the church and the doctrine. All we have left to criticize is ourselves, is the membership is ourself personally, even if we're having a faith crisis, we're like, what is wrong with me? I'm not faithful enough. All of that is because there's this ironclad wall around the doctrine, the brethren, the prophets and apostles Mm -hmm. that you cannot disagree with them. You can't criticize them. You can't any of that. That's completely off limits. Mm -hmm. So the only thing left to criticize when we see problems is 
the culture, the membership, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, the the kind of maybe one of the threads that undid that for me was realizing, oh my gosh, every single thing that's problematic about this culture, the biggies being that we're really judgmental, that we're really perfectionistic, that we um, don't include everybody, that we leave yeah. out people who have doubts and people who are gay and people who are women and people who are black, all of those things, our God does those things. Our God yeah. is a perfectionistic God. Our God is a judgmental God. Our God leaves gay people out of heaven. <laughs> like Our God okay. had a thing that we can't criticize that left black people out of salvation for a century. Like yes. <laughs> those things aren't cultural issues. Those are God issues. God is not cultural. God is doctrinal. So mm -hmm. it's not these two separate things, doctrine over here, culture over here. It's a continuum. It mm -hmm. is the same thing. <laughs> and, totally um, like until we get a better God and better mm -hmm. doctrine, and we're able to disagree with the brother and we are stuck only complaining about the culture. Um, yeah. And, and why are we like this? You know, why are we screwing up so much? It's always our fault Our you know, the general membership it's not the leaders or god and it's so crazy to me because yeah and the way you phrased you talked about the priesthood ban being a salvation ban oh my goodness i've never heard anybody say it that way but that's exactly what it was because yeah. when you call it a priesthood ban number one you it makes it sound like it was only it only affected men exactly you leave out all the women who were denied the temple and salvation yeah 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 and, and then, yeah, you, you leave out everything that involves, you know, families being together forever and, and all that stuff. So salvation ban is a way better title for what that was. Yeah. You think, oh, big deal. They couldn't bless the sacrament. No, they couldn't get into heaven. Like we kept they, them from. Like, they couldn't get into heaven. That is totally true because that's what our doctrine teaches. You have to go to the temple in order to make it to celestial kingdom. So, oh, so gross, so gross. But yeah, that was, that was really mind blowing to me because I mean, I don't know, I guess it's like, there's a lot of things in our church that like, and maybe I th I'm sure the church, you know, this is kind of the way they set it up and they want us to think this way, but just there's so many things that we just don't think deeply about. We just always go, yeah, that's just the way it is. And maybe that's partly just being born in it and being so immersed in it that you don't see the the ocean you're swimming in but but yeah when when it's pointed out to me and once you do see you can't unsee it right did you have that experience where you're just like suddenly your eyes it feels like your eyes just opened and you can see all the problems and you cannot make them go away yeah my general conference was never the same <laughs> yes I, definitely yep. I loved general conference same oh same I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that now because why in the hell did I love that? I don't know. I thought it was inspiring. I would like prep beforehand. I would like want to be so spiritually fed and I would take notes and I would, it's embarrassing because now I look at it and I'm like, this is so bad. It's so boring. It's so pointless. It's so, they, there's not, there's no substance well, it's not an accident that we were super into it. I mean, the propaganda, I mean, the commercials, the propaganda, the constantly, I mean, every single Sunday, you are, the conference talk is a lesson and you hear, I'm so excited for conference or I was so fed by conference. I mean, you 
millions oh, yeah. of those messages. So it's not like, oh, silly me. I was into this thing. <laughs> it's like, of course I was into this thing, very yeah. into it. And I was told all of my problems would be answered. I would find solutions to my problems. And I did because I was looking for answers and I heard them because I was looking for the answers and told I would receive it there. So I did. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of why like talking to ex-Mormons, hearing other people's stories is so validating and like so needed. Cause you're like, I wasn't the crazy one, right? Like, am I crazy? You're always like thinking, did oh, yeah. I something silly, but hearing so many other people say, yeah, that was exactly how I, you know, felt. And that's what I did. Then it's like, okay. So it's not just me. Well, and feeling crazy, that's not an accident either. Because oh, how many millions of times we hear lean not into thine own understanding, the natural enemy man is an enemy to God. Like you cannot trust yourself, especially when you're thinking contrary to the doctrine and the brethren, especially then you can't trust yourself. So it's definitely not a question why we feel crazy, why we feel like we're going insane, like there's something wrong with us. Mm -hmm. Like, of course we feel that way. Yeah, it's totally built into the whole system. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Okay. So I also wanted to talk about some of your, some of the things you talk about, about boundary setting, because mm-hmm. it's a huge part of how we've been taught our whole lives, especially as women. It's so interesting because you'll talk to so many Mormons, Mormon women, or people who grew up in the church and they're like, I'm just a people pleaser. Like that's their personality. But I think, and it could be, there's lots of people that that's kind of their personality, but I also think it's so much of what we were fed constantly. We don't know how to set boundaries. We don't know how to listen to our gut. We don't know how to say no. We don't know how to, you know, we're so worried about everyone else's feelings and making sure everyone is happy. We always put ourselves on the back burner. And, And that, like I said, that is an issue in the overall culture of patriarchy and whatnot, but in the church, it seems like it's, it's built into the system as well. Absolutely. And especially, especially for women. Yeah. That's not an accident either. Yeah. It's not a bug. It's a feature. hundred percent. Yeah. It's hard to see women, I think coming out of this now or waking up or even within the church, outside the church, kind of being really hard on themselves for being people pleasers or for caring what other people think when it's like, of course you care. Of course you're worried about disappointing people. That was syringed into our DNA for generations. (laughs) Like, of course you do. That was, it's connected to your ability to return with your family to God, like service and, and, kindness and charity being the number one commandment and love above all, which gets translated as just constantly putting everyone above yourself and service and contention is of the devil. Like, of course you're worried about disappointing people. Like, of course you are. It's anyway, um, not an accident, (laughs) not your fault. I I'm kind of noticing a theme here. (laughs) None of this is an accident. Yeah. It's so crazy. I love how you talk about, um, let's see, there was a quote where you said, the only person you need to convince of the validity of your boundaries is yourself. And oh my gosh, I have, I agree with this 100%, but I also have a huge problem. Like that, that points to my brain of like, oh yeah. Like, cause I always think, okay, 
Is this boundary reasonable? And how do I do it without upsetting anyone? And how do I make sure the other person knows that my boundary is valid and I'm questioning myself? So I love that you said that. That is the way I kind of think about boundaries and setting boundaries, especially as women, is like we're trying to get to this ocean of freedom, right? Where we're free to think for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves. But we've built this literal wall this barrier that's called, I cannot disappoint anybody in the process or inconvenience anybody or make anybody feel bad. (laughs) And we're trying to tiptoe around this wall to the, you can't, you can't, you've built a barrier for yourself. You have to pummel that wall down and give yourself permission to inconvenience people, disappoint people, make people in your life upset, your kids, your husband, your parents, your bishop, whoever, like you must tear down that wall before you can get to the ocean of freedom. It's not like, because we, yes, we spend so much mental energy being like, I want to be free, but I also want to keep everybody in my life happy. So how can I do both of these? You can't, you can't, (laughs) they are diametrically opposed. Like you have to walk through the doorway of disappointing people in order to get to freedom. There's a really good book about that called the courage to be disliked. And he literally says it's a door. And you can't get through the door. The, the door is called being disliked, which he also includes as being embarrassed, disappointing mm-hmm. people, a lot of different things and the umbrella of being disliked. And it takes courage. It takes real courage to be like, yes. I'm going to be disliked or I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm going to upset someone. But you have to walk through that door to get to freedom. Yeah. And that's the one thing we've been told we're not allowed to do. That's what makes right. it so hard. Not upsetting other people, inconveniencing other people, not being of service to other people, putting ourselves first. Those are the things that are diametrically opposed to our salvation that we've been taught. So that's what makes it so, so, so hard. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of fear wrapped up in, in doing that. Why, why are we so afraid to disappoint people? Um, but we, but we are, because that's, that's all those things that you just listed. Like those are the bad things, you know, and that's self or that's, you know, that we're supposed to be nurturing and loving and embracing of, you know, being just, and selfless. Oh my gosh. That when somebody says, describe somebody as selfless. I just feel bad for them. Like, oh gosh, oh, that is the worst thing anybody could ever say about me. Like, I don't want anyone to ever say that I was selfless. <laughs> that means you have no self. It means you have less of yourself. You want to be self-full. You want to be full of literally yourself. Full of yourself. Yes, you do. Yeah. Way to live. yeah. Well, and I think um, especially women have this issue, but definitely men too. When they leave the church, they don't know where to start with this. They go, okay, so I know I'm supposed to, well, and that's a whole thing too of the 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 manual of what you're supposed to do. You know, I'm supposed to like, grow up and, and, you know, set some boundaries and figure out who I am. And it's really hard to do because we've completely buried who we are, who we are decided that our gut instinct is not reliable. We can't listen to ourselves. We don't even know how to. So it's a whole process, just learning that by itself. Absolutely. And I do take great comfort that Mormon women aren't the only women going through this, like Elizabeth Gilbert's books. She's going through the same thing. That's all eat, pray, love is, is like, now I have these pockets of time where I'm suddenly divorced and asking myself, like, what does Liz want? I've never asked myself that question before. Or like Glennon Doyle with untamed. That's what it is. That's the journey being like, oh my gosh, I was like a cheetah just 
pawning after some pink bunny, I'm like, I'm a cheetah. Oh my gosh, I am free. Like a lot of women, all women, I have to go through this process and it sucks. And I think women, Mormon women have a ton more weights strapped around our ankles that we have to untie and undo, but um, it's definitely not, we're not the only ones. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a societal issue as well. Just living in a patriarchal society. Right. I loved untamed. Uh, I love when she says like something to the effect of um, disappoint everyone else before you disappoint yourself. Mm. And that is the exact opposite of everything I've ever been taught. Don't ever disappoint all the people around you. And it's fine to disappoint yourself. Like that's the way I lived my whole life. (laughs) Yep. Yep. That was like our North star basically (laughs) how we knew we were holding on to the iron rod. (laughs) Yep. Yep. If we were just taking care of everyone else, right. Service, 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 service till you die. Totally. And not that like I'm against serving other people, obviously. Like I, I feel more, um, charity now than I ever did before. Like I genuinely care about suffering in the world and, you know, doing these things. Whereas before it was all very artificial. I mean, that was one of the things that I loved in the church was the opportunities to serve. Mm -hmm. It's just different now. I guess I don't really even know how to articulate why or how it's different. Well, this is one of the things actually that makes leaving the church quite tricky. That's not maybe talked about as much Mm -hmm. is because I think always the um, tendency when you leave this thing where you're just like waking up, like, oh my gosh, this thing that I thought was the truth and the goodness, it's, this is the bad place. This is the bad place. And you're freaking out. And yeah. so it's really, I think what everybody does, and it's just a part of it is you flip everything upside down and that's your new compass. Like everything that mm-hmm. was good is now bad. And everything that was bad is now good. And now we're breaking all the rules. And now, you know, God and every, like whatever, everything bad. So I think with service, you know, it is tempting to just be like what we've just been talking about. Like we've been legitimately harmed. This isn't something uh-huh. true by being unable to stand up for ourselves, to prioritize ourselves and our own needs and our own desires. And that's true. And something that's also true is that surface is legitimately beautiful and helpful. Like, and those two things can coexist and it can be a really helpful path if we are feeling really dark or low, it can be legitimately like a way out of the dark to, to help other people. Like it's not all bad and it's tempting to kind of be like, well, screw that. I'm never serving. I don't, not that you're never serving anybody again, but just the, the work of kind of not making it black and white and being like, okay, how am I going to reconstruct this? How am I going to think about service? And something that was like a, a helpful, um, I don't know, kind of construct to me in terms of reconstructing service and how I wanted to think about service and like apply it was the, let's see, Father Gregory Boyle. He is this um, Catholic priest who started a, a, like the world's biggest gang rehabilitation program in California. Oh, and um, he's actually so inspiring and great, but the way he describes service is um, like service is the entryway often, but it's not the final destination. It's just try to get us into the main hall, which is called kinship. And sometimes mm-hmm. the way we do that 
is by serving, but the, it's not the end all be all kinship is the end all be all like kinship, meaning ultimate connection and genuine, like compassion and tenderness. And sometimes we can get there by like doing a service project. It might like introduce us to people we wouldn't otherwise be around, but it's not the final destination. Anyway, that's kind of how I think about service sometimes. Yeah, I love that. And, and I love that you brought up like the black and white thinking and trying to like kind of undo that because there's so many areas of my life where I really did have a, just a very black and white um, way of thinking. And so it's either all or nothing, either, or, and now the ability to just say, to stop and, and look at each thing separately. So like take service, like we're talking about, like, and I can actually genuinely ask myself, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about doing something for someone else? And is it just, I either have to do it or I have to throw it all out? Or can I do it within certain parameters? You know, can I still take care of myself while also looking out for other people and caring about the people around me? Mm-hmm. And I love that idea also of the kinship thing, because that feels like a much more connective way of just being, you know, you, when you have a kinship with somebody, you think you'll do anything for that person. You'll, you know, you are deeply connected to that person. It's not just about, oh, I'm going to go pull their weeds. You know, it's much deeper than that, which I think is really beautiful. Remind, tell me the name of that book again, or the author or the father, Gregory Boyle. I can't, I cannot be blanking on the name of his really famous book that I really loved. Okay. Really helpful to like, be like, oh, like in that stage where I was just really, I don't know, not knowing how to think about God and Christ. It was like, oh, it was just like a really good Christian example of like, this is what it's all about. Like okay. that kind of God and Christ feeling. And yeah. it's really all about, and his life is devoted to service, but it's a very healthy service and it's a very beautiful service Ooh. and it's a very needed service. Yeah. And just one more note, I guess that I was thinking about in terms of the church often confuses the end all be all it makes service the end all be all and what happens when service is without kinship and it's just a check mark right like bringing somebody a meal but being resentful of it because you have to or because you have to earn your heaven points that sounds really condescending but it's hard to anyway but or like visiting teaching or whatever all of those things that you have to do it becomes a check mark when service is the end all be all but when kinship is the end all be all, then it's like, okay, well, I don't have to bring them a meal, but like, if I want to feel connected to this person or show my love or connection, what else, you know, it just opens up more possibilities and it takes away the duty of it, which is really important. 100%. It's totally different when it's not a checklist anymore. Like it makes it completely different. I love that. That's really beautiful. Okay. And so then another thing I wanted to talk about, and people message me about this topic a lot, and I probably just need to do, you know, multiple episodes just on this topic. And I know we could talk about it forever, but the idea of like, when you leave the church, suddenly you're like, but how do I raise my kids? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You kind of dealt with this in your practice. So maybe let's talk about your practice too. And they go into like, So tell me how you got started in this. I've never heard of a, it's a spiritual companion. That's what we prefer to be called, but the actual, like, I guess, institution discipline is called spiritual direction. Okay. Okay. It's kind of a misnomer because we're not really directing anybody. (laughs) So we prefer the phrase spiritual companion. Yeah. I Um, think that makes it sound more like you're just there to help 
support somebody in their spiritual journey. Is that right? Yeah. yeah so the history is interesting. The history is interesting. It started, I don't know, decades and decades ago um, in Catholicism, actually, when people were basically going to the priest to talk about, you know, their prayer life and God and their questions and their struggles. And the priest just didn't have time or like energy, like it was just too much. And so they're like, we need this service. That's just like a spiritual companion where someone can talk about their God issues and have someone walk alongside them where it's not all in the priest's. And so there was kind of, I don't even know exactly which congregation it started in, but they started making these things called spiritual directors. And then through the decades, it started becoming more and more institutionalized and there was training programs and there started being manuals and there started being, you could go get trained specifically to be a spiritual director. And then of course it cascaded into lots of other Christian sects. And then it went into Buddhism and Islam and all sorts of different congregations. So I had never heard of a spiritual director until, I don't know, 2021, just scrolling Instagram. Someone was like, oh, my spiritual director said something so smart. And I was like, spiritual director? And I think it was from a post-Mormon. And I was like, I have never heard of that. I was yeah. like, what is that? I want one immediately. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds like something I very much need. And yeah. I just started Googling it. And then like within 15 minutes, I had come across this page of the Chaplaincy Institute, which is in Berkeley, California. And it is an interfaith. Um, program that tries very hard to incorporate every belief under the sun and legitimize it and validate it, whether that's anything. And um, anyway, I was just like, I'm going to do this. And I like applied that week. I think <laughs> I was just like full body. Yes. Let's yeah. jump in. And it's been an interesting journey because the, at the time, I guess this was like January of 2021 when I applied and then my program started that summer. Um, I was just like, so in my like spiritual happy bubble with like me and Eckhart Tolle, like super vibing and like <laughs> Richard Rohr. And I was just like meditating and I'm just like in this happy bubble. And then throughout the, the course, it's funny. I just, I felt like I don't have much religious trauma. And then my course was like, ha 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 ha. Here you go. <laughs> full platter of it. <laughs> like, I really realized how much trauma I have around listening to men teach me anything adjacent to the spiritual realm. I was immediately triggered. And then also I just became really disenchanted with like spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, anybody, spiritual teachers, like highly skeptical. So I was kind of journeying through this, through the two years of my program, which was an interesting journey. But I, I had a really good um, supervisor in that program that I could kind of talk through it. She was like, you are so not alone. Like so many people are here on this journey and like, you're welcome okay. here and it's fine. And you don't have to believe. I was like, what if I don't believe in God? And she's like, fine, all of it's fine. <laughs> That's <laughs> anyway, awesome. Yeah. So now I'm kind of emerged. So I did a year of classwork and then um, a year of meeting with people for my practicum. And now I've graduated and I'm kind of emerging as like, I feel like what I see as a really needed hole to fill in the spiritual direction discipline, which is like spiritual direction for people who hate the word spiritual or who don't know, like who are kind of get the ick in their mouth about anything talking about God or don't know really what to, you know, how to replace the meaning they once had or purpose or Yep. have kind of an existential itch and aren't sure how to scratch it. I think mm -hmm. that's, I think a lot of spiritual directors are really afraid of atheists and don't quite know what to do with them. And I'm like, come on in, baby. Like I'm here for you. Like, 
And, yeah. but also I actually meet with a lot of people still in the church. And I, I was surprised to find, I love doing that legitimately. Ooh, it is yeah. so exciting to get a front row seat to people's biggest self-empowerment moments and like w- giving themselves permission to, to disagree, to do things their own way, to trust themselves is so fulfilling and exciting. And I absolutely love it. That is so cool. So you have people who are still in the church being mm. a spiritual companion and kind of going through this, like it, maybe a little bit of a transition of faith, but they're still fully believing in the church. Not fully believing. I wouldn't say I'm not attracting like super active members who are like, this okay. is my life and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't okay. think they would trust me or want me, but people who have followed me who are like, I trust this girl and I'm going through it. I'm it, yeah. like, I think I attract people who are like at that point where I'm like, it, it feels impossible to stay and it feels equally impossible to leave. Yeah. What do I do? Oh, so interesting. Wow. And I'm, I'm so fascinated by, cause I've ended up following a lot of people who are not ex Mormon or ever been Mormon at all, but they're ex evangelical or, you know, and they, there are so many people waking up out of religion and seeing like the harm that was done to them mm-hmm. and the harm that the religion teaches. And so many people are in this same spot. Like I've read, you know, several books from authors who were not Mormon, but like the way they describe their experience sounded exactly like what I went through. So it is kind of amazing to see that a lot of other people in the world are experiencing the same exact thing. Definitely. And it's very validating and helpful to read those books and listen to people outside of Mormonism who are going through the same thing, because I just found reading memoirs from people leaving religion was so helpful and healing to me because I couldn't quite, my life was too close to like my parents or whatever to kind of, um, just kind of get stuck and like, why are they saying that? Why is, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get over this? And then to like, put myself in the shoes of, you know, like the girl from the Westboro Baptist church. who wrote. I read her book. Oh my God. And you're like, well, of course she's not over it. Why would she be? This was her life. Or like, of course her parents are saying that. What else would they be saying? Like, of course they're not listening to her. They can't listen to her. You know, just like stuff like that, where you can't see it in your own life. It's so helpful to read those stories from other things. So you can be like, Oh, I get it. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, totally. And, and it was interesting reading that, um, unfollow book with the Westboro Baptist church, because we all have, uh, feelings about that church based on what we've seen in the media. Right. And then she describes them as these very lovely, beautifully loving families and stuff. And you're like complicated. Mm-hmm. Yes. I loved that. That was so validating to me and my past. And like, it's so much more, it's not black and white. It is so, it is colorful and complicated and messy and beautiful all at once. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of the process is learning how to accept that and see it for all that it is. Cause I think there's really definitely like a, a a separating and a sifting and like, we have to put everything in categories of good and bad. And, and, um, it is really validating to be able to say it's all just part of life. It's all, and all of it's okay. Like it might be messy. It might be good. It might be bad. There's all of it. And, and that's okay. So did you kind of go through a phase when you, when you left, like, but what about my kids? You know, like the kids (laughs) yourself. 
Um, yeah, you know, what's funny is I guess I didn't write as much about it because those feelings are so fuzzy to me now. Like I'm having a hard time remembering. I know that I did. Mm-hmm. I know that I did, but it's like, I can't recall the panic anymore because I'm so resolved in yeah. the like mentality that they're going to be fine. And that I'm doing them a service that I yes. know that I did, but it is actually hard. It's a little hard for me to remember, to but I know remember. that I did. Yeah, me too. I feel like I went through that phase really quickly because I was like there and I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'll still, cause my daughter was just about to turn eight when I told shelf totally crashed. And at first I was like, you know, I'll, you know, maybe she'll still get baptized. Her siblings got baptized. She was my youngest. Um, and I'm like, you know, it'll be fine. And if they want to go to church, they can go to church and da, da, da. but it didn't take me very long before I was like, no, like, it's not fine. It's not okay. Like, I do not want them to be indoctrinated. I do not want them. And then was the phase of like, well, but so then how do I replace religion? Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of parents feel that like they're they replace it. Right. Yeah. And you have to realize there's a lot more going on than just parenting. I mean, we're on this precipice of just so much change and uncertainty and we coming from a place of die hard certainty and you being given a manual that's literally like this is the correct way to parent mm-hmm. this is the most important thing is to teach your kids the gospel and to get them to have family prayer every day and um family home evening every week it's and that there's a lot of comfort in that of like it's not up to me to figure this out someone much smarter and bigger and better and closer to god than me has figured this out and given me a checklist that is so like oh phew oh what a relief oh gosh I'm so afraid of messing up my kids that if I just do this and I they will turn out and a lot of people are figuring out didn't work out that way but yeah. anyway it is in the moment like such a relief so it's not a question of why when we lose that it's extremely uncomfortable and like oh shit now I have to write the manual I me myself and my silly little brain that's very succumbed to all sorts of silly things is now in charge <laughs> of my kids' well-being. That sucks. That sucks. That's scary. That is a lot of pressure. And I think a lot of people are now in search of like, well, yeah, that replacement. Like I want that uh, certainty, that assurance of like, I won't screw up my kids if I do X, Y, or Z, right? Yes. The church hands that to you on a gold platter and what a relief. But So yes, of course it's uncomfortable and it's scary to, we could mess it up. We could write the wrong man, whatever. I don't know if I'm just trying to validate people who are feeling a lot of fear um, around it, that makes perfect sense. But also when you zoom out the underlying assumptions of the idea that the Mormon church holds the one right way to parent is utterly absurd. Like the only way our kids are going to turn out good moral citizens with integrity is <laughs> the only people that have that certainty are the 0.003% of people on earth or who way less than that who have ever walked the earth. They're the only hopes for morality in this life is if they, have, that's absurd. That is absurd. No one else gets to be moral integrity agents in this world. No one else. No, of course not. Like, of course, there are so many ways to raise good moral kids. And like, if you read parenting books, they're not saying, you know what? The only way to do this is to be a Mormon. (laughs) That's not in them. Like, you don't. Like, the most important things are love and connection and fostering them to trust themselves. And like, 
you know, forge their own moral compass. And I think that just like we're flipping the the pyramid of important things in parenting, like the base of the pyramid is these things that you probably already have a good, a solid relationship with your kids, love, trust, companionship, like yeah, the ability for them to have a safe place to, to talk. And, um, you know, we, and like maybe the, t- the tip of the ladder is like actual tools, uh, the tip of the pyramid, like, you know, specific things that we could do, which in the church would be prayer and scripture study and da, 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 da. But we flipped that in Mormonism and say, no, the base of the pyramid is the, the tools. That's the most important. And so then when we lose that, we're like, why do you have the most important thing? It's like, no, you do. You do. You're good. It's okay. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Because because you've just been taught to be afraid of anything that is different from church. And I, I always thought that you could not be a good moral human being, that they would you know, if my kids left the church, which my son did when he was 14, he, he decided he was out. And therefore I was a failure. I had completely failed the one job, the one thing I was supposed to do and I failed at it. And so that's super hard. But then also what I recognized is like my desire to have him in the church is actually pushing him so far away from me that mm. he's never going to like repair this relationship. All I care about is him being in the gospel or him believing in the church. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's what happens when you flip that pyramid, which the, when the tools and the, the actions become the most important thing, going to seminary, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking to watch the rifts, like in my personal life of my friends and family members who are absolutely slaughtering their connection with their kid over forcing them to go to seminary. I can't, it breaks my heart. Yep. It's like destroying relationships and parents who are, I'm, I'm in a, in a Facebook group that is LDS parents of gay kids mm-hmm. and in there back when I was LDS and I've just never left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See some parents who are agonizing over their child being gay and they are trying to walk that tightrope. They are trying to balance it because they're still committed to the church And that was one of the very first things, like I said, that made me leave was like, there's no way for me to fully love my child and also support the church. And so it it breaks my heart when I see people who are still really trying to do that. And unfortunately, they are destroying their relationships with their kids, like their kids. They cannot. uh, Well, okay, I cannot see any way possible. For them to fully love their child and be fully in the church. I, I don't think it's possible. And maybe it is, but I don't see how. Because for me, like, if I'm going to, I'm going to pay my tithing to a corporation who spends their money lobbying against gay rights, I can't fully love my child and do that. Can I? I don't know how. Unless you just turned a blind eye to it and you don't know but like if your church has a salvation ban on your gay child that's what it is it is it's heartbreaking it's oh gosh yeah no I have so much empathy for the parents that are trying the the, the church has put them in an impossible situation really they they put them in an impossible situation and it is heartbreaking it's because they're having to boing out like against this 
you know, lifetime of conditioning of how their brain works and what is good and what is bad and what is safe and what is scary and what to approach and what to avoid, all of that. That's a big hurdle, right? It's not just like, oh, why don't you just leave? Like that's a big legitimate hurdle, but then having to decide that and you're, it's so hard and complicated and God bless us all. I'm so sad for that situation. And I'm sad for you. I'm sorry. That was so hard. You had to go through that and good job being brave and courageous and loving. Thank you. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And I mean, maybe there are ways that, you know, people who can live more in the gray area, but maybe I was just too black and white of a thinker, but it's like, there's no way I can, I can make these two things fit together. So, and I, I tried in the beginning, I really did. I was like, I'm going to make the church a safer place for gay people. Like I'm going to wear my rainbow pin and I'm going to speak up and I'm going to hang my rainbow flag out front of my house and, um, and still be in the church. But it's, it's not just the culture. It is the doctrine. It's not just a matter of changing people's minds. It is. It goes straight to the top of the big guy himself. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) It really does. But I loved what you said about, you know, if you go and you look at any parenting book, not one single parenting expert says you need to teach your child a religion. They need to be in a religion in order to grow up to be healthy human beings. And that's, I mean, that sounds so easy and simple of a thing to like, well, yeah, duh. But when you're in the church, you don't think that way. Oh, not at all. And you're not hearing that in the church. The thing you've heard your whole life is your kid is for sure going to have sex, for sure going to look at porn, definitely smoke weed, probably <laughs> like join a gang. Like the, I mean, literally you're hearing that stuff every Sunday. So of course you're scared. Like uh-huh. you're not thinking like, well, kids down the block seem okay. Like, I don't know. It's not your world. Like anyway. Yeah. And you think that the moral compass comes from the church that like, if they don't have the church, there is no morals. There's no there's That's what we've been taught. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was really awesome for me to, to recognize that like, oh my gosh, my kids are like, they're good humans and they don't, they're not in the church and they don't believe in God and they're perfectly fine. They're not turning into murderers. I know, it's absurd. It's absurd. Like when you think about absurd. it in hindsight, it's absurd, but in the moment, that's all you have. But yeah. It is, it's crazy to think that the only way we wouldn't kill ourselves is if we believed in a sky daddy. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yes, totally. It is absurd. And it's, it's really nice to be able to laugh about it on the outside once you're out of it. <laughs> yeah. It really does a number on your brain. Oh, it does. It does. So I love that you're doing this spiritual companion thing. I I might need you. I might, I might need you at some point. Um, because I do, I kind of went through this whole like nihilistic phase. 100, sure. And now I'm just sort of, I feel like I'm a little bit like, mm, I don't know. I'm very much, I think I'm, I'm open to things. I, there are things that resonate with me, like ideas about, um, you know, just connection with the earth and all living things. And I, I definitely cannot believe in a sky dad. I can't, that's, that's gone for me forever, Same. but can believe in a power outside of myself, but I wouldn't describe it as a higher power or someone that's in charge or it, you know, like controlling everything. But I, I want to understand, I want to like, I don't know, feel a little bit grounded in some belief, but I don't know what that looks like. 
So is that kind of what you do? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for ex-Mormons, like we've been so wounded by being in the room of God and spirituality. Those have been so legitimately harmful to us that we are completely not interested at all in being in the room where God and spirituality is discussed. No, thank you. And for me, I've had to realize that I have to shut that door. I have to lock it. I have to go into a completely different building from the God spirituality of my past, which is what I realized in my spiritual direction program, that if I thought the speaker was talking about Christian God or um, that kind of spirituality of performative prayer and whatever, I shut down. Like I couldn't listen, but if I could shut that door, lock it, go across the street, enter a different building. And now here we can talk about universal connection. We can talk about being centered and grounded with the earth. We can talk about, you know, the universe and how there's 300 billion galaxies. And we can talk about frogs and like (laughs) creation and painting and poetry and beauty. And when we can talk about those things, like, hell yeah, sign me up for that. Um, but I can't. And so I think what I, a lot of times what I, my job is to kind of walk people across the street. (laughs) We're not going to talk about this other thing that's harmful, but there's this also other building. You don't have to call it spirituality. You call whatever you want. You don't have to force anything, but if you want to scratch an existential, existential itch, there's other ways to do that. And let's play and let's explore and let's experiment and how exciting and lovely. I love that. Okay. So for my listeners, tell them how they could contact you. Where can they find you? What's the best way to, if they want to just follow you on Instagram, or if they want to like sign up to be, have you be their spiritual companion, where, where do they start? So my website is the same as my Instagram handle. It's celestemdavis.com. And there I describe what I do. I describe exactly what a session would look like and different kinds of sessions you can sign up for cost, all of that's on my website. And you can sign up my calendars directly on the website. You just pick a time that works for you. That works for me. Sign up. You'll get an email. It's easy peasy. That Um, is super easy. Okay, good. And then they can follow you on Instagram, go to her Instagram and just like, listen, go through some of her posts and stuff. And you'll just see like, you'll, yeah, I just think you're the best. I really do. You just, you're super wise and, and articulate. Like, which I think I struggle with. Like, I don't know how to say the thing, but it's in my brain. And then I hear you say, and I'm like, yes, that's it. (laughs) Thank you. That's so nice. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So um, thank you so much for being here today and like being willing to take the time because I know you're super busy and you have a lot of places you can be, but I really appreciate it. I think my listeners are really going to appreciate your wisdom and what we've talked about today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. It was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you can, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation, of course, but better yet, set up a monthly donation of even just five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. (laughs) And here's a place where you can donate and know that you're supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.